you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, Lord willing, in this new year we will finish this, um, this passage and in the, next, in the next coming weeks, and then we will, um, we will start in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and we will do uh, a series through the Gospel of Luke, which will take us mm, probably two years so. Um, but uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17, you think I'm joking about that, but I'm not. It, it probably will take us about two years to get through the Gospel of Luke, but that's okay. And so 2 Samuel chapter 17, 2 Samuel chapter 17, and uh, it's taken us almost a year and a half to get through First and Second Samuel, so um, 2 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 1, we'll go through the entire chapter this morning, so all 29 verses is where we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll look at that, um, pull out some, some truths that uh, I pray will be encouraging to you and to me in this new year as we look to the reality that uh, the battle, all battles belong to the Lord. Uh, and so we trust him, we look to him. So if, you have, if you're physically able to do so, I'm going to invite uh, and your, uh, you to stand with me as we honor the ring of God's holy and written words. So 2 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, beginning in verse 1, going through the entire chapter, hear the word of the Lord given to you and I this morning. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me now choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed or exhausted and will make him afraid or literally terrify him. And all the people that are with him will flee and I will strike the king only and I will bring back all the people to you. The man whom you seek is as if all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. And this saying pleased Absalom well and the elders of Israel. Then said Absalom, Call Hushai the Archite also, and let us hear from hear likewise what he has to say. And when Hushai was come to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken after this manner. Shall we, shall we do after his saying? And if not, speak. And Hushai said to Absalom, The counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. And for he said, or for Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are uh, and, and that they are uh, fierce in their minds, and they and as a bear robbed of her cubs in the field, and your father is a man of war and will not lodge with the people. Behold, he is hidden now in some pit or in some other place, and it shall come to pass with, when some of them are overthrown at the first, that whoever hears it will say there is a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is, is as the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and they which are with him are valiant men. Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba as the sand that is by the sea for the multitude, and that you go to battle in your own person. So shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found, and we will light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and of all the men that are with him there shall not be left so much as one. 
Moreover, if, you, uh, if he has gone into a city, then shall all Israel bring ropes to that city, and we will draw it into the river. Let's drag it into the river until there is, someone, there is, till there is not one small stone found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil Upon Absalom, then said Hushai to Zadok and to Abiathar the priests, thus and thus and thus did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and thus have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not lodge this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king be swallowed up and all the people that are with him. Now Jonathan and Ahimeaz stayed in Enrogel, for they might not, so for they might not be seen to come, coming into the city. And a young maidservant went and told them, and they went and told King David. Nevertheless, a boy saw them and told Absalom, but they went, both of them, quickly and came to a man's house in Baharim, which had a well in his court and into which they went down. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread corn or grain there over it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman to the house, they said, Where is Ahimeaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they have gone over the brook of water, and when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, after they were departed, that they came up out of the well and went and told King David, and said to David, Arise, and cross quickly over the water, for thus has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people that were with him, and they passed over Jordan by the morning light. There lacked not one of them that had not gone over the Jordan." And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose, and he got and he, and he got him, he got home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order, and hanged himself, and died, and was buried in the sepulchre of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom passed over Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the host instead of Joab, which Amasa's Amasa was a man's son whose name was Ithron, an Israelite that went in to Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sisters to Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom pitched in the land of Gilead. And it came to pass when David was come to Mahanaim that Shobai, the son of Nahash of Reba, of the children of Ammon of Machir, the son, and Machir, the son of Amiel of uh, Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite of Rogalim, brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour and parched corn and beans and lentils and parched seeds and honey and butter and sheep and cow and cheese of cows for David and for the people that were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning to your word, we come with the confidence that not only is this word, the, the word that you have given to us, but we come to, with the confidence that uh, you have given it for our encouragement, for our good to learn and to grow in and to grow from. And so help us to hear, help us to learn, help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I think you can be seated.
be careful. We need, we must be careful, not only what we hear, but also what we value and who we choose to listen to because it makes all of the difference in the world. What we tune our ears to, who we tune our ears to listen to, and how we choose to listen. I I heard of a story not that long ago of two men who visited um, New York City, uh, and they actually were walking near Times Square, in Times Square, and happened to be passing by a tree when when one man turned to the other and he said, I hear a cricket, to which the other man said, there is no way you hear a cricket. There is There are cars and there are taxis. There are all kinds of things, people talking and whatever. And he said, yes, but it's all about what you value. And he said, let me prove to you a point. So he took out out a couple of quarters out of his pocket and he dropped them to which lots of people all of a sudden turned to look toward the sound of the quarters dropping to make sure that it wasn't their change that they had dropped out of their pocket. And he said, see, it matters what you're listening for. And so he began to dig through the brush, and he found in this one little spot, in this through his investigation, a cricket. And the man said, brother, you must have some superhuman ears and the other, and the other, the friend looked at him and he said, "No, I told you it matters what you're listening for." See, you and I must be careful of the counsel that we listen to, and the people that we honor and value. We must be careful. We must be careful what we value and who we value. The things that matter to us matter. And the things that we value must be the things of God. The things that we treasure must be the treasures of Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you two very different men who value two very different things. And they come in the example of Hushai the Archite and Ahithophel, um, both, both of which had been counselors to King David at one point, now being counselors of, of Absalom, but one being uh, Ahithophel, being a true counselor to Absalom, and Hushai, the Archite, being the, uh, the subversive one. But both of them show us that no matter what else is going on, if we, when we look to the Lord, when we value the Lord and value Christ, it is the Lord who always wins the battle. It is Christ that will win f- and f- who fights for us and wins on our behalf. And so let me show you here in verses 1 through 29. This is the first part I want us to see, which is, which is the whole chapter, which is the war belongs to the Lord. But I want to make a couple of different um, observations as we look at the, this battle, this war that belongs to the Lord. First, it's this. God places his people in strategic places. God places his people in strategic places. Now think about this. Think back to where we have covered. If you've been here, you know that we've already covered chapters uh, 12 through 16. And you'll know that there were a whole lot of people valuing a whole lot of things and none of them were valuing God. None of them asked God what they were to do. None of them sought the Lord. God is is barely mentioned by name throughout these, except for when God rebukes through the prophet Nathan, David, for his sin uh, against against Bathsheba. And so we come to this, we, we understand that in this passage, that throughout all of this, God has sent judgment upon David, and yet in all of this, God has blessed David with grace in the midst of his judgment and of him judging him. And so it's interesting as we go back even to chapter 16, we see in verses 15 through 19 that God actually places a man by the name of Hushai the Archite 
in the service of Absalom. He places him exactly where he needs to be. You see, Absalom has already occupied Jerusalem. He has come and he's occupied Jerusalem. He has, he has, he has won an initial, uh, an initial battle because David hasn't even fought. He decided rather to save the people in Jerusalem and he's decided to leave. And so Absalom comes sweeping in and Absalom takes the city quite effort, effortlessly. And yet, Ab, yet Hushai, what do we find in verses 15 through 19? We find Hushai coming to Absalom and saying, I will serve you the way I will serve David. But there's a key point to all of this, isn't there? Because back in chapter 15, in verse 31 through 32, listen to what, we, listen to what the text says. And someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David had come to the top of the mount, literally had just finished praying, and had come to the crest of the mountain, where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came. And what is it that we, as we read on, what is it that he tells Hushai? Hushai, you will be a burden to me unless you go back and you, account, and you take care of the counsel of Ahithophel. God has placed Hushai, the archite, in the exact strategic position that he wanted him. And yet it is, it is in fact, a response to what? To David's praying. Right? David has prayed. God has, even before David prayed, God had already sent the answer to his prayer. It's amazing how God does that. And the reality is, is that what was the point of all of this? The point of all of this was sabotage. God had sent Hushai to sabotage the counsel of Ahithophel. And so David, David says to, to Hushai, he says, go back, counsel, counsel Absalom falsely for my sake to protect me. And really, Hushai comes and he asks Absalom, he says, look, I've served David. I'm going to now serve you. I will now be a blessing to you the way I was a blessing to your father. And of course, we know Absalom's response to this was with friends like these who needs enemies, right? Because he asks Hushai, he says, really? You're going to serve me the way you serve my father? What kind of friend are you to my, what kind of a friend were you really to my father? And we find that, that, that Hushai responds and he says, no, no, you're the king, you're the rightful king, but I'm going to serve you. And Hushai does, but cleverly, right? He, he, he is seeking to subvert this open rebellion. He's seeking to, to, to short-circuit the open rebellion that has taken, pl- taken place. And within all of this, though, what do we have, Hushai and Ahithophel and all of this? What, what, is, what is it that these counselors are constantly appealing to Absalom for? Well, I think you find a couple of different things here, as, and this is going to matter, particularly as we get into this story. It's going to matter that constantly Absalom is being appealed to for his youth and his beauty, right? It was said that Absalom was so beautiful that there was no one else like him in all of Israel. And, and not only that, but that his entire family was beautiful, so much so that there was no one in Israel like them either. They were that beautiful. So they are constantly appealing to his youth and his beauty. They are constantly appealing to his pride, right? Because after all, he has just taken Jerusalem. He is the new king. He has established himself as the king. And he is taking pride in this battle, this, this not even really having to fight because they're so scared of him that they've already run away. And he, as a result, he has pride in this initial victory. But what else? He also has pride in the fact that he now has Ahithophel, 
who it said that it was as if when you heard Ahithophel's counsel, it was as if you had inquired of God, right? And now Hushai, the archite, who was known to be a great and wise counselor to David. And so what was there not to be proud of? He was, he was beautiful, he was young, he was strong, he was victorious, and he had lots and lots of wisdom. But, but... I think it brings us to a second reality. Not God has placed his people strategically in this moment to accomplish his purpose, to thwart Absalom and Ahithophel's counsel. But I would say this, brothers and sisters, I think it is important for us to know that although God does place his people at times strategically in areas to subvert evil and the authority of evil, evil may in fact succeed for times and seasons But even in that, it serves the purposes of God. Even when evil seems to succeed and and flourish for a season and a time, God allows these things for his own purpose and his own glory and his own honor. And yet we see Absalom succeeding. I mean, he takes Jerusalem without a fight. He now has wisdom. He now has, he has, now has Hushai and he now has um, Ahithophel. The priests are there. The ark of God is there. The temple of God is there. David has nothing but his own life. The, the, the clothes on his back and the few friends and a few of the close men in his army who chose to flee with him. David has a very small company of people. Absalom seems to have it all. And so he asserts, quickly moves to assert his royal power and his royal authority. How? By by sleeping with David's concubines in public, in a tent. And he does this so to show, one, that I am the king, I'm I'm exercising my right, but two, I'm also burning any relational bridges that I have with my father, so much so that I now stink in my father's nostrils, and there is no coming back from this destruction of this relationship between us. There's absolutely no way for us to rebuild that bridge. There is no way for us, because I am the rightful king, I am the usurper, right? and I now take control. There's no coming back from this. And yet in the midst of all of this, what do we see God doing with David? Has God abandoned David? Has God forsaken David? Has God left David to the sort of the wilderness and sort of just let him do his own thing? No, absolutely not. We see God is still with David, even though God is in the midst of punishing David. God is still with David. God is still protecting David. God is still blessing David, as we'll see in just a few moments. God is, even though, even though there is this assertion of royal power, the, seeming, the seemingly wicked and evil man has now taken over the kingship of the nation of Israel, God has, in fact, given him over to judgment, and he doesn't even know it. Absalom doesn't even know it yet. But it is interesting that Husha, or I'm sorry, Ahithophel, by the way, remember, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather, and from the text, the implication is that Ahithophel has taken in this, in, this, uh, in this rebellion against David because it never appeared to Ahithophel as if God judged David for the sin of murdering his son-in-law and the sin of what he, what he did against his granddaughter Bathsheba. Ahithophel being one of David's mighty men um, uh, and, 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 David, and um, 
the, all of these, all of this sin taking place. Bathsheba was the was the wife of one of David's mighty men who protected and watched over David. David has David has done one of the most despicable and wicked acts of treachery and treason against one of his own mighty men that he swore to protect with his life. And so Ahithophel has has taken in unto this rebellion because he is going to make David pay and so he uses his wisdom for evil purposes and evil means and for evil reasons but even in this God does allow Ahithophel to successfully counsel at least initially Absalom what he should do but but God quickly turns the counsel of Ahithophel backwards upon his own self and this is really what the testimony of Scripture is, right? The, the wicked seek to, to, to do all kinds, to set all kinds of traps and to cause all kinds of problems for God's people. And yet constantly over and over again, though for a time they may seem to succeed, they constantly are falling into the traps that they've set for the righteous and the godly. So the testimony of Scripture. And I think that brings up another interesting point for us, which is not only is there this time of this, this, this counsel, this wicked counsel to succeed, But within this, there is this counsel for this quick strategic strike. And make no mistake, had God permitted this, or had this been permitted to succeed, or had it been permitted, Ahithophel's counsel would have succeeded. There is no doubt that Ahithophel's counsel was good insofar as what he attempted to do. And yet, we see see him doing what? We see him saying, well, I'll tell you what. Absalom, let me take 12,000 men. This will be a quick strategic strike only against David, against no one else. And I know David. I know David. I have been David's counselor for years. I have been his friend for years. I have studied him. I have watched him. We have been friends. I know his ins and his outs and his idiosyncrasies. I know everything there is to know about David. And I will kill him and I will bring everybody back. And everyone will rejoice because you are now the king. The problem is, the problem is that Ahithophel had chosen to fight against God. In his counsel, Ahithophel never sought to recognize that what he was doing was ultimately fighting against God. And I think it does bring up an interesting point for us. Although, although Ahithophel is certainly a, a human counselor and was a human counselor, right? Um, I think it does bring up the reality of our enemies who know us best, right? Uh, and, and, and before we, we jump and say, well, that's Satan, that, that's true, obviously it is, Satan does certainly know us, and Satan certainly has a connection with knowing us and knows our weaknesses and knows where to tempt us and to try us and to test us, and he seeks our, our downfall, but even our own selves, right? We don't have to look at Satan necessarily to see that we have an enemy in our flesh, in our own flesh, uh, something that we are continuing to put to death day after day, seeking to put to death day after day our own sin and waging war in the power of the Holy Spirit against our own sin. Our own self knows us this well, and it knows what we love. It knows what we desire. It knows everything about us. It knows us well. And certainly to that, I would certainly add Satan and the world system as well. The world system knows what men and women in general love. We love and what we cherish, and it seeks to attract us to sin by attracting us away from Christ. And so we must be careful. We must be careful who we're listening to, what we're listening to. We must be careful of the counsel that we're getting. We must be careful of what we're valuing and what we're treasuring and making sure that it is in alignment with the word of God and not with my own flesh, not with my own desires. 
And I think within this, then, I think you see something else that comes, to play, comes into play. Is not only does God allow for evil to succeed for his own purposes, even though he uses it for his own glory, God controls the outcome of absolutely every single situation. And that's, that's clear throughout the, 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 this book, throughout First and Second Samuel, throughout the Bible. It is, constantly, it is constantly God is in control. Proverbs says that, um, you know, a king plans his ways, but his heart's in, his, in the Lord's hands. And so, so we know that ultimately, though, though kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, though, though people plot uh, and, and plan all kinds of things, ultimately it's God who is the one who is in control of every single situation. Because the question has to be asked here, right? A rather, I think a rather obvious question, right? If Ahithophel's answer was so good, and Ahithophel's answer was so right, and Ahithophel's answer pleased, as the text tells us it did, pleased Absalom and all of the elders in Israel, why ask Hushai the archite? Why? Unless God has determined to destroy Absalom. Unless God has chosen to destroy him. If it makes no sense that for Ahithophel to give such good answers and to give such wise things, uh, wise uh, counsel, and then for uh, Absalom and all the elders of Israel to say, that's great. But, you know, maybe we should ask Hushai too. That makes no sense unless God is sovereignly in control and he even seeks, he uses his own purpose, for his own purpose, God seeks to foil Ahithophel's plot by having Absalom seek another opinion. Now, why? Why would he do this? I mean, obviously, it was the God was seeking to destroy, and that's what the text will tell us. God was seeking to destroy Absalom and, and to judge Ahithophel and those that have rebelled against, um, against, the, against King David. But I think even more than, or I think, I think in that we have to realize that God has used us as, and, and uses our decisions and our 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 um, our opportunities that we have to for obedience. And I think He has used Hushai's faithfulness in the past. I think to appeal ultimately to Absalom and say, you know what, Hushai has been a good friend. He's been a good counselor. Maybe not quite as wise as. Ahithophel, but he's a very wise, faithful man, and I don't think he would counsel me wrong. And so God ultimately uses Absalom's pride and Absalom's gullibility. Gullibility, and that's a word I think we need to ultimately remember in our culture, is that there are a lot of gullible people in our culture, and we need to be careful with, our, with gullibility as well. But Absalom was a gullible person. He believed he believed that everybody loved him and nobody would tell him anything wrong. And so God says, I'm going to use this. And so here's Hushai's plan, right? He proposes a different plan. And in proposing this different plan, he says, I'll tell you what. Ahithophel has good counsel, but on this one, he's not right. Here's what I think we should do. I'll tell you what, Absalom, why don't you, yourself, as the supreme leader of the nation of Israel, get your horse, ride out in battle, and take care of David, and lead the entire army of the nation of Israel against David, because after all, you can then destroy David, the men that are still faithful and loyal to David, as well as David, and then you can take back as, uh, as uh, ransom or as, as your spoils of war all of the women and the children and, any, and the animals and the livestock and everything else is there. We'll just take it all back. And in doing that, what is, what is Hushai doing? 
Well, Hushai is doing a couple different things. Hushai is first playing on Absalom's fears because he says, he says, well, what happens if you follow Ahithophel's counsel and then just a few men die and all of a sudden the report comes back and says, hey, there's been a slaughter and everybody starts becoming very scared and their hearts are melted and David ultimately is able to win. Then he says, but you know what, Absalom? Well, also don't forget David's reputation. David is a warrior. Although David is 70-some years old at this time, David is still a warrior. And then he plays on Absalom's greatness. But you are our king, and you are so great, and you are so awesome, and there is nobody like you. You are so beautiful. After all, Absalom, you have just created a statue in your own memory, and it is standing here, and look how beautiful you are. And look how great you are. And look how awesome you are. And look how, look how, look how beautiful everything has been going according to plan. But ultimately, what does he do? What is Absalom's ultimate need here? He wants to be greater than his father. Absalom has remained in his father's shadow. And Absalom is tired of living in his father's shadow. He wants to break out of David's shadow and destroy the memory of his father to show everyone that he is not just some spoiled good-looking brat, but he is great and he is the greatest king to have ever existed and to live. He wants to be free of his father. He wants to be free of his father's memory. He does not want to continue to live in the memory of his father. And he will do whatever is necessary to destroy his father, to kill his father, and to decimate his father's memory so that he, Absalom, will be remembered as the greatest of all people. We see this play out even today. We see people making lots of different choices, even today. I don't want to live in the memory or the shadow of my mom or my dad or my grandparents or this one and that one. And so what am I going to do? Well, all my decisions are going to be different than the decisions they make because I am driven not instead of for the glory of God. I am driven by envy that I need to separate myself from X, Y, and Z. My brothers and sisters, that's not the point of what God has called us to. God has called us to glorify him in all things. God has called him to honor him in all things. We are not to compare ourselves with other people. Who cares? Who cares? God hasn't called us to compare ourselves against what other people look like, think, or how they live their lives. We're called to, uh, to evaluate ourselves in accordance to Christ and to what he has called us to. And so in those, as a result, then, what ends up happening? God controlling the situation. The Lord destroys the proud. Because listen to what it says here. Listen to what he says here. Not only here in this text, but also in, in, in for instance, in James chapter 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? God, God resists the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace. And what is God doing here in Second Samuel chapter 17? He's resisting Absalom. He's resisting Absalom by, count, by, by bringing Ahithophel's counsel to futility and by uh, exalting Hushai's counsel, which ultimately leads to destruction. Why? Why? Well, don't pass by this phrase in verse 14. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because it's a, it's a, it's a reason. It's a clause for the reason given here in verse 14b. For the Lord had appointed or had 
ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. To what intention? Well, to the intention that the Lord would bring evil, literally destruction, upon Absalom. Why? For his wickedness and his sin of presumption. I mean, Absalom was in fact in line. He was in line to become king. He was in line, at least in line of secession. He was in that line. He was the next to become king. We know that the Lord had already ordained that Solomon would be that that next in line, but he had, in fact, he was in line of succession. And the Lord uses the, the, the pride of Absalom here, and he uses the pride of Ahithophel and the pride of those that are with Absalom to destruction, to destroy them, to destroy them. But for us who are in Christ, believer, what, what is, how is this different? Well, remember, remember what the scripture says in 1 Peter. It says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Right? First Peter 5, 5 7, right? The elders there is not old people. It's your, it's your pastors. It's, it's, your, it's, it's your pastors that have been given to care for your souls. But God ultimately controls the outcome in all of this because as we proceed throughout the rest of the story, what do we find? We find spies that are hidden. We find spies that hide. We find, we find them hiding in, 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 in wells and all kinds of places. And we find ultimately that Ahithophel is found to be fighting against God because he abandoned God and God frustrates his good counsel and the traitor then does what? He goes, kills himself. Now for us in the New Testament, obviously this should remind us of the greatest traitor of all, Judas, who betrayed our Lord ultimately, David's greater son who would come and would die on the cross, right, and given up by the hands of Judas, right, willingly. And so ultimately God calls this king and this kingdom to fall, this illegitimate kingdom. But God saves his people because David gets the word, David moves to Mahanaim, he gets rest, and he gets help because there are people that come and help him, right? They give him things like, uh, beds and they give him basins, uh, literally like seeds, grain, um, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched corn, or literally parched, uh, parched wheat, and beans and lentils and uh, parched seeds and honey and butter and sheep and cheese uh, that comes from cows. By the way, this was a huge, huge deal, right? Um, but uh, most, most cheese came from goats. Um, by the way, if you ever had goat cheese, ugh, but cows, cows cheese is good. But um, the, the reality is that uh, cows and, and cheese from cows and, and, and people came to him, but who were they? Listen to who they were. Shobai, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon. Wasn't even a Jew. Wasn't even an Israelite. He caused the Gentile, a Gentile, to come and help him. And then... Makir, the son of Amiel of Lodibar, who was not a, a native-born Israelite either, and Barzillai, the Gileadite of Rogalim. Again, he was an Israelite, but he was, <clears throat> he was one who remained faithful to him. So we have, we have a Jew, an or a non-Jew, an unbeliever, and a, uh, or two non-believers, and a, uh, or non-Jewish men, and we have a, a Jewish man helping the king. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting 
as we look at this, because ultimately in verse 26, it says that they prepared for war because they were able to eat and to drink and to refresh themselves and ultimately be prepared for war. Brothers and sisters, we, we must, as God's people, realize that this passage ultimately points us to King Jesus. Now, how do I say that this points us to King Jesus? Well, ultimately, Jesus, who is the greater son of David, was the victim, was not the victim, was the, was the one who, who willingly allowed the conspiracy of powerful men to succeed against him, right? We find in John 11, we find throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus constantly talking about how he was going to be betrayed, how he was going to be crucified, how he was going to be resurrected on the third day. And Jesus, as David's greater son, would fulfill what happens to David in a much greater way. Jesus was was will, willingly chose to allow the conspiracy of powerful men to succeed, whereas in David's case, the conspiracy of powerful men did not succeed. But Jesus was, as David's greater son, betrayed by a close companion. Just as Ahithophel betrayed David and was David's Judas, so Judas himself betrayed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the 30 pieces of silver. And we've realize that as a result of both what happens the betrayer ends their own lives they commit suicide but we also realize and understand that God accomplishes his purpose despite the opposition of the betrayer and the unbeliever now what do you mean by that well with David David ultimately ultimately wins the war and comes back as king and is ushered in as king with Jesus Christ his victory is ultimate insofar as that while he was crucified on the third and, and rose on the third day for our sins and over, victorious over, uh, over sin and hell and death and the grave, Christ is the ultimate victor and he is the ultimate king. He is the one who, who while he was betrayed, ultimately the purposes of the betrayers and the purposes of the unbelievers served God's purpose. With David it was to ultimately defeat the unbeliever, oh, Absalom and the, and the usurper Absalom and Ahithophel. And with our, but in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's case, it was to ultimately bring salvation to everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. It is ultimately to bring salvation and and redemption to those who are far from Christ and are far from the Lord, who don't know Christ, so that all who repent and believe the gospel would, in fact, be saved. So, how does this passage apply to us? Well, let me tell you a story. Now, for some of you, you may not like this story, and that's okay. Just, Just hang with me. One of the greatest books, book series of all times, one of the greatest, one of the greatest series of all times, I think, in the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. Theoden, uh, Theoden, king of Rohan, has been released from a spell that's held him very captive, kept, held him captive for many years. And at last, he's been free from this, right, and he's now been, been freed, and he finds himself in a rather precarious situation. And he finds that war is, is there's a large army coming towards him of, made up of, of orcs, and they are destined to destroy his kingdom. So he has two choices, to flee or to fight. So he chooses, rather, to side against uh, the counsel that's given to him, and they decide to flee him and his people to Helm's Deep. But Theoden does not seem to understand the threat. And then there's this, this, this interaction in the story that happens. Theoden, speaking of protecting his people, he says, I will not risk open war. To which Aragorn replies, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. 
And this whole passage reminds us as Christians that we cannot forget that we have an enemy, the enemy of our souls, yes, our flesh, but also Satan. And against the world system, we wage war against sin in our own hearts, in our own minds. We are constantly fighting these things, and we need to fear, since we, we need to fear the Lord and not fear these things, but we need to fear the Lord since, since we know that God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness in 2 Peter 1.3, and that it's through Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit that we're able to see victory in the midst of these spiritual battles that rage around us. This is why, if you, as you read the Apostle Paul, what do you get? What do you get? As you read the Apostle Paul, what do you get? You get a likening of the Christian life to an, a war, to a spiritual battle constantly waging over and over and over and over again. And the three enemies given, whether it be John or Paul it, or the Apostles, it is sin, it is, the, sorry, it is Satan, flesh, and the world system, and only these can be resisted in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember, my brothers and sisters, that we do not fight an enemy, unlike David, who was flesh and blood. Ultimately, our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not people that oppose us, but rather the evil schemes of the enemies of our souls, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we must realize that whether or not we would risk open war with sin in our lives, open war is upon us. And we as God's people must fight in the power of the Holy Spirit against our sin. We must fight against these things. Because God, God is, his invisible hand of providence is solemnly govern, so, sovereignly governing history. Isn't that what we see here? Men are seeking to subvert David, seeking to subvert the authority of David and the kingdom and the one that God has appointed. But what is God constantly doing? No, no. Constantly destroying the purposes for which they desire to, uh, to oppose him in. And he says no. And ultimately at the, end of the, at, the end, at the end of days, what is going to happen? God will ultimately show the futility of such wickedness. And he will, in fact, once and for all, destroy his enemies the last being death the last being death itself who is the enemies and so we must be as men and women wise in our actions hoping in the lord trusting in the lord serving the lord following the lord honoring the lord because ultimately god answers the prayers of his people doesn't he and so we must look to christ we must trust in christ we must sit before the Lord, waiting patiently upon him, seeking his wisdom and his counsel from godly sources. Ultimately, the first source being the word of God, right? We must look to the word of God. We must seek the word of God. And then we must seek wisdom from those who protect us and are to protect us and watch over our souls. There are many people, there are many people who excel in worldly wisdom, but in the end are simply fools. But brothers and sisters, there is no one greater who fears the Lord there is no one greater in this world who trusts the Lord and serves him and fears him and listens to his counsel. And I would say that while many people in this earth, on this earth have, have great earthly affairs, their earthly affairs in order, ultimately they are not prepared for the, for the eternal reality that awaits them. And those who resist the Lord 
and resist his anointed one, ultimately Jesus, the greater son of David, who fulfilled the promises of God to David in in 2 Samuel 12. In the reality, what we have here is we have that they, like Judas and Ahithophel, who do not take refuge in the Lord, will meet the same will meet the same fate as Judas and Ahithophel. And so the counsel of the Lord is turn to the Lord before it is too late. Trust in the Lord before it is too late. Repent and turn to the gospel of Jesus. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him and trust him. Let me close out by simply asking you one question. Because I want to address one thing here. Because I think it's important, and if I didn't, I think it would, be, it, it, it would actually be a tragedy. What are we to do with all the lying? What are we to do with all the lying here in these passages? What are we supposed to do with all the lying and the deceit that takes place here? Whether it be Hushai, whether it be uh, Ahinoaz, uh, or Jonathan, or David. What do we do with all the lying that we find in this passage of Scripture? Is lying allowed? Is there ever a time when it's acceptable, right? Well, we have to keep in mind, I think, a couple of things. First, this is a time of war. This is not a time of peace, right? And the Ninth Commandment does forbid us from bearing false witness and forbids us from lying, right? It does. But I think there are two important issues that we have to keep in mind here as we think through this passage of Scripture. One, Hushai and the woman who hid the two young men, the two young spies in the well, like Rahab and the Hebrew midwives, right, and even David's deception while running from King Saul, is commended because of the faith that they had in the Lord, not because of the lies they necessarily told. They were commended because of their faith and their, and their trust in the covenant loyalty of the Lord and his protection. And so, in other words, Hushai's faith was the focal point, not his lies, and certainly not the woman's lies, and certainly not the young men's lies, or David's lies, or anybody else's lies. But even more than that, I think Hushai rightly saw the conflict between Absalom and Ahithophel as a war against God, against God and against Satan. And they had, in their treachery, declared war, not just against God, not just against David, but ultimately against God. And so Hushai sides with Yahweh. Hushai saw sides with the truth of God in the world. And I think in keeping with this wartime scenario, what we have to keep in mind is, we, is that he withheld an unseated godless counsel. And whatever else we can say, we must remember this is not a peacetime moment, a Romans 13 moment, but a wartime moment. And so I don't know if that answers the question fully, but I think it is important for us to think through as God's people. What do we do with all the lying sometimes like this? Because we have to address it, because if we don't, our unbelieving friends will. They'll come with us, and they'll come to us, and they'll ask us, what do you do? What do you do with these passages where God says, do not lie, but all of a sudden you've got all this lying going on in the Bible? I think it's important that we think through these issues. I think it's important that we, we think through these logically and biblically. And so that, to that end, that we have greater confidence in the God who has given us the scriptures and ultimately given us salvation in his son, Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time in the word. We ask now your blessings would rest upon your people and upon this congregation as we seek to be faithful to you and serve you and honor you and love you and seek to make much of King Jesus in this year that at the beginning seems so very possible, so very so very sure of, so very, so very confident in the, the, the reality of what's to come. God, we know that you know what this year holds for each and every one of us. And no matter what this year holds, Father, may our confidence be as Hushai, 
May our confidence be in the covenant loyalty of our God and our King. May we look to Jesus first, last, and always. May our comfort come from Christ. May our joy come in Christ. And may you help us by the power of the Spirit to fight for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name.